Well, today we are beginning a brand new series, which is specifically about what we just sang about. God had 400 people coming out of bondage, and he wanted them to know and live like free people and not take their slave habits and practice those in their free life. So our series is called Life of the Party, and we're describing the God of the Old Testament. The life of the party? I thought he was the killjoy. Isn't he the rule guy? Isn't he the, you know, I'm really Old Testament. Whenever you're talking about that, you're thinking like angry God. We're going to discover that in these fantastic feasts God sets out, that God of the Old Testament is a God of such joy, such a life of the party. He says, my people coming out of bondage need to make sure they organize their schedule, organize their year around throwing massive parties to rest, to celebrate, and to eat lots of food. I want my people to be a joy-induced, party-throwing people through some specific feasts. So he opens up talking to Moses about these feasts, and here's what he says. Moses, speak to the children of Israel, coming out of Egypt. Say to them, these feasts of the Lord, which you're going to proclaim, are holy convocations. The word, these are holy days. Now that's where we get the idea of the word holidays comes from this word holy days. They're set apart days. They're different from the routine days. And they're convocations. What's a convocation? A convocation comes from Hebrew word meaning rehearsal. Rehearsal for what? Wait till we find out. Each one of these feasts not only has its meaning for the people right there, but they are rehearsals for something to come that is amazing down to the very day and hour in how God put it all together. And they were not to just throw arbitrary days and parties at any particular time. No. The first holy day that they were to have is that six days you're going to work in a given week. On the seventh day, I want you to take a holy day, a Sabbath. So one of the first rests I want you to have is every seventh they take a Sabbath. But then there's going to be seven specific days, and I want you to have those, appoint those, and schedule those at very specific appointed times. And a feast is like a a vacation, a time of rejuvenation, a time of community, a type of rest. Now, why would God mandate parties for his people? Well, because for 400 years they've been slaves. And slaves don't feast. And slaves don't rest. And he wants his people who have not been able to feast or rest for 400 years to practice the disciplines and habits of being a free people. And you and I say, well, yeah, thank goodness we live in the freest nation. Well, can you go a day without checking your phone? Are you enslaved to your technology? Can you go a week on vacation and truly rejuvenate and unplug from work? Or are you still a slave to your productivity? Are you still a slave to your technology? 
Have you bought second and third homes and you don't even have time to use them? You might still be a slave, even though you're free. Slaves don't feast. They don't have time for community. They don't have time for celebration. They can't step away. They can't recreate. They can't replenish. Slaves don't feast and slaves don't rest. And so these feasts are going to be reminders of things God did in the past and rehearsals for things he's going to do in the future. And my hope is as we examine these patterns, we'll be able to organize our lives daily, weekly, monthly, annually to put habits in our life to replenish ourselves, to fill ourselves back up, and to reconnect with God in a sustainable way. First, rehearsals. This particular one, we're going to look specifically today at at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These were reminders of everything God has done in the past. So God begins here in verse 4. It says, these are the feasts of the Lord. They're holy, they're holidays, set apart days. They're convocations, rehearsals, that you shall proclaim. You've got to do this. You've got to proclaim this. Proclaim means a, a calling out, a calling together. We've got to make this part of our rhythm. We've got to make this part of our pattern. And as you call yourself out, as you call other people out to these patterns in your life, you need to do them at a specific appointed time. And the Sabbath and the Passover occurred at very specific times. Here it is in a calendar. Here's the American calendar or the Roman calendar here in the middle and the Jewish calendar on the edges. And God has these feasts in very specific locations. You'll see Passover occurs, and then often one day after that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is why they're tied together. Sometimes the very day after that, three days in a row, another feast, first fruits occur, which is why these got put together as the Feast of Unleavened Bread include all three parties. Then 50 days later is the Feast of Pentecost. Then there's a long, 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 long gap from Pentecost into the Feast of Trumpets. Then there's a Feast of Judgment called Atonement. And then there's like a New Day kind of festival called Tabernacles. And God says, I want you to do these particular feasts at particular times to put rhythms as to what I've done in the past for you and rehearsals for what I'm going to do in the future. And specifically, Unleavened Bread and Passover will be a time of remembering and praying. So here's what happens. On the 14th day of the first month, at twilight... And keep in mind, the Jewish day begins at 6 p.m. So the Saturday, the Sabbath, Saturday the 14th at 6 p.m. is Friday the 13th for the Egyptians when the angel of death comes. So on the twilight of the 14th, that will be the Lord's Passover, a time that you remember what I did in Egypt. Remember how I delivered you. And on the 15th day of the same month, That will begin another feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And seven days I want you to party. Seven days I want you to celebrate. Seven days I want you to pray. Seven days I want you to remember. Seven days I want you to gather with friends. Until the great eighth day. It's called the great eighth day of celebration. And during that time, you're not to eat unleavened bread. So the details of Passover are in Exodus. But let me remind you a little bit about it. It was a reminder of several things. Before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you would go through your house and get all the leaven out, all the yeast out of your house. It was a spring cleaning time that you went through every closet, through your pantry, and you literally got the yeast out because yeast was a metaphor for sin. It expands, it grows, it contaminates you. So you would eliminate all of the yeast in your life. It was a reminder that as you cleaned your home, you also need to clean your heart. 
God, what are the things in my heart, in my closets, in my pantries, in my own life that I need to clean out and be reminded that you forgave me for? Then, during the feast, the youngest child there, it would often be something for your kids and grandkids, would ask the four questions. Two of which are, the child would say, why is tonight different from all other nights? And during the Passover ceremony, you would say, because we can recline. So you wouldn't actually be seated. You almost always were laying down as you were having the meal, reclining. Child would say, why are we able to lie down on this night? And you would say, because on the original Passover, we couldn't lie down. We had our staff in hand. We had our backpacks on us. We had our luggage ready to go. Because God said, be ready. Don't wait for your leaven to rise. Do unleavened bread so you're ready to go. I'm going to deliver you tonight from Egypt after 400 years. Why is tonight different from all of the nights? Because now we're free people. We're no longer slaves. We can lie down and enjoy a meal because we're no longer in slavery. Because then you would take a piece of parsley dip it in salt water, you'd eat it. And the salt water reminds you of the tears that were shed for 400 years crying out for deliverance. You would pour into your cup 10 times your wine would be dripped into your cup. Reminder of the 10 plagues that God had to use to defeat the gods of Egypt to bring deliverance. And then you would take unleavened bread, three pieces of unleavened bread, in fact, And of those three pieces, one would be separated from the other three. Hmm. And of the one that separated from the other three, it would be broken. And as you ate the meal, one half of that would be hidden by the kids or grandkids for a time. And it would be brought back to you and eaten to speak of forgiveness. You'd also be reminded that a perfect lamb that you'd kept in your home for 14 days, a lamb you loved, was very valuable, without blemish, had to die. And its blood was put on your doorpost so that when judgment came over, and you deserve judgment, you, you did wrong things, but when the judgment of God came over your house, it would literally pass over your house because something perfect, a lamb, died in your behalf. So this feast every year was to remind the people of the great cost of their salvation, the great cost of their forgiveness, and the fact that they are no longer slaves, that they are now forgiven free people. So that's what this ceremony went through every year. And there were three particular feasts of the seven that were required. You didn't have to go to all seven. Interesting about the Old Testament, there's no synagogue back then, so you really were only required to go to church three times a year. Like, wow, it's kind of nice. I don't know how you feel about that. But three times a year, there were three times that you were to journey to temple. And it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which included Passover. The Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. And the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, no man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Where you brought your feast before God to remember what he has done, to remember what you're trusting him to do, to give him your harvest, to trust him for the next year. These were three required feasts. One of which you remembered God's forgiveness... Another, you remembered God is the one that provides for your your agriculture or your job. Another, you remember that you need God's presence with you. All of these were reminders of how God worked in the past so that you could entrust him for the future. Now remember, Saturday the 14th is the day of salvation starting at 6 p.m. Which is why most historians think the superstition of Friday the 13th began in Egypt. Because it was on Friday the 13th in Egypt that the angel of death came 
And that's why it's known as superstitious because, oh, what's going to happen on Friday the 13th? Because in Egypt, children firstborn died that day. So the good news is, if you're into superstition, you can just sort of be free from all of that. Because the day of Friday the 13th that was death to the Egyptians was salvation for the Jewish people. So walk under a ladder, open an umbrella inside, go find a black cat. We're free people. We're free from superstition. We're free from that. And even history seems to indicate that's where that superstition came from. It's a celebration that God made us free. We're free from fear. We're free from superstition. We're free from sin. We're free from shame. God has literally, through the Passover, forgiven us of past, present, and future wrongdoing. There's a legend told about Rolls-Royce, and it's a legend. It's not true, but it's a great story. There's a London plurocrat who, in the early 1900s, drives his Rolls-Royce from London over to the main European continent. And when he gets there, he decides to go for a ride in the Alps. As he's riding in the Alps, he hears a twang, and one of the springs goes bad. He calls the headquarters back in London. He says, oh my goodness, something happened to my Rolls Royce. They said, we're going to fly somebody out there right now. They fly two mechanics out. They fix it on the spot. Give them the Rolls Royce back. And he's like, wow, this is going to cost me a fortune. A month goes by. Two months go by. Six months go by, and he hasn't got a bill. He calls the main headquarters. He says, Hey, uh, I hate to even bring this up, but six months ago, I had this thing in my Rolls Royce. The spring went bad. Uh, two of your guys came out here. I'm sort of waiting for the bill. To which the receptionist says, well, let me check our records. He says, yeah, I'm checking our records. We, 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 we don't have any indication that you had any car problems six months ago. In fact, as I'm looking at the records, we, we don't have any record that we've ever had any problem with any Rolls Royce ever breaking down. <laughs> and this is this idea... That God has forgiven us of past, present, and future. And when you call in to say, remember what I did, he's literally separated through the Passover judgment. The east is the west is how far he separated his sins from you. So the second part of Passover, it was a time also of offering and resting. So on the first day, you shall have a holy holiday and you shall do no customary work. And he mentions this twice, and I think this is so important, because I bet you your personality and mine are very different. And I bet you when you and I go on vacation, or you and your wife go on vacation, the way you vacation or rest is different. Like for me, vacation is a time to learn to sail. It's a time to play volleyball. And you're like, that's not a vacation. It is for me. So how do you know if something's really rest? Well, I love this phrase here. The principle is, you're not doing your customary work. This is whatever rejuvenates you as you take this time of rest. It's something that fills you up, something that fills your tanks. You're not just producing the same old, same old. You're creating a holiness or a set-apart day, a set-apart week, a set-apart time to rejuvenate yourself by not doing your customary work and by resting. Now, the, the Pharisees will eventually turn to this a whole set of rules, and if you take three steps, it was work. And, you know, and Jesus comes and says, you, you've missed the point. The principle was, don't do customary work so that you can be replenished and reconnected, rest and offering to God. And you would often, during that time, bring an offering for seven days to give back to God to thank Him for how generous He's been to you. God, thank you for the generosity of your forgiveness. Thank you for what you've done. You took seven days and rested to show me the pattern that I need seven days of rest in my own life as well. These were the rhythms. I remember about two years ago, uh, Ken Kington, he's a comedian we bring in occasionally, and he was going to speak in a series we did at our exploring service. 
I get a call at midnight. At midnight, he says, Chad, I'm in Philadelphia. I just finished a stand-up uh, show, and the flight's been canceled. There's no way I can get back there tomorrow by 10. I hope you have something prepared. And so that night about midnight, I started working on a message. And ironically, the message was about margin and work-life balance. <laughs> and I came to speak, and, and I opened this talk on rest and margin. I said, you know, what I have found in my life is that I have extreme extreme amount of creative output. Now, I probably produce somewhere between 60 to 80 original messages per year. That's a pretty significant amount of research, a pretty significant amount of output. And I find that my ability to produce at 125% capacity is dependent upon my schedule being at 90% capacity. If I can put 10% of margin in my life for fun, for rejuvenation, for fresh ideas, for fresh study, I find that I can produce more when I actually have creative input. My outputs are dependent upon my inputs. And that morning I shared, I said, you know, when I got that call last night, I was a little panicked, but not too much, because I had some room in my schedule to be able to prepare. And I talked that day about some of the rhythms in my own life, some of the rhythms we try and put into our, our own schedules. And somebody said, listen, the talk was fine, but man, I was amazed at how that principle of rhythm that you were practicing that even as you gave this message. Talked to a guy a few weeks ago who uh, was in the NFL for many years and his second career is uh, selling insurance. And in his second career, he said, there's times that you just, you're pushing the numbers, pushing hard, pushing hard, and there's just times you hit a slump. And I found over the years that when I'm in that slump and everybody's just grinding through, I will take a two-day weekend vacation to get my mind reset, to get replenished, to get sort of recharged, and I'll come back to work. And everybody's still charging. They haven't made any more traction than they did two days ago or seven days ago. And I bring a, a fresh sense of joy, a fresh sense of perspective to it, and I'm able to actually hit the ground running even harder and better because I took some respite during the times of stress. So I don't know what that looks like for you, but it's important for us to have patterns of rehearsal where we remind ourselves that God is faithful, we remind ourselves of what he's done, and we rest in the fact that we're trusting him for our provision. So, I told you that these feasts, Passover and Love and Bread, were reminders of the past, but they're also rehearsals, convocations for the future. And this is where it gets really cool. Because if, if we reflect on what God has done in the past, it recharges our faith for what He will do in the future. And that's what we need. We forget how faithful He is. We forget how powerful He is. And therefore, we don't grow our faith because we get worried. We get fearful. We get like, well, He showed up last time. I don't know if He's going to show up this time. So you're to proclaim these appointed times. And why are they, what are they rehearsals of? Hmm. Even Paul shows up in Colossians. He says, listen, even as Jewish Christ followers who are free, you can still celebrate the festivals if you want to. Why? Because these festivals were shadows. They were rehearsals. They were little hint, hint, elbow, elbow, wink, wink, something's coming of the substance which is Christ. To which maybe as I described Passover, you said, I see Jesus everywhere. He's the lamb. He's the blood. He's the one free giver. He's the one that died on our behalf. But there's so much more God's put in place in these rehearsals. How can the substance be Christ? Well, without giving everything away for the next five weeks, I'll just give you a little hint. Let me tell you a little bit about tabernacles. We'll start there. Tabernacles was a time that occurred somewhere between September and October. It was a time when the shepherds were out in their fields by night. It was a time that John chapter 1 verse 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, verse 1. 
And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Hmm. Tabernacles might just be Jesus' birthday. We'll find out in four weeks. And then Jesus, after 33 years living his life, he just so happens to be arrested and just so happens to be killed on the very day predicted in 1500 B.C. by Moses called the Feast of Passover. He dies on the very day of the calendar that the Passover lamb died. Hmm. And then his body was put in the ground. And during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, everybody in Jerusalem would be praying to God during the Feast of Unleavened Bread to bring out of the ground their crops for the coming season. So literally everyone in Israel is praying during Unleavened Bread seven days. They're praying that God will bring out of the ground that which they most need. And that's the very day that Jesus' body is in the ground. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then, just a day later, depending on which year you're in, sometimes it's three days later, the Feast of First Fruits is when the crops come out, you take the first part of the crop that God has given you, and you give that to Him, the first fruits, and it is a promise that God, I'm giving you the first part of your crop because I'm trusting you for the crop to come. And on that day, a Sunday I might add, on the Feast of First Fruits, when what comes out of the ground is what you give to God as a promise of what's to come, is the very day Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And Paul calls him the first fruits of resurrection because it's just a taste of the resurrection to come. And if you're reading the book of Mark, he actually says that when Jesus raised from the dead, he actually raised a bunch of other people from the dead and they're walking around with him. And he doesn't give us any more explanation, by the way. Because that is Jesus' first fruit offering, offering resurrected people to God as the promise of more resurrection to come. And then 50 days later, he tells his disciples to wait. And God will send to them that which they most need on the very day of the very feast predicted 1,500 years in advance by Moses in a feast known as Pentecost. That just as God brought down the law on that day for Moses, he brings the Holy Spirit down on that day. What a coincidence. And you see the substance is Jesus. All these were rehearsals for 1,500 years to what God was going to do. And if you wonder if Jesus really is God, if you wonder if the Bible really is reliable... Try doing that. Try writing something 1,500 years in advance and down to the very day you could predict somebody's death, burial, resurrection, and a cataclysmic event that would change the world called Pentecost and turn the Roman Empire upside down. Passover is mentioned 28 times in the New Testament. And Jesus takes this Jewish Passover feast and reclaims it, fulfills it, And what you grew up thinking of as the Eucharist, if you grew up Catholic, or communion, if you're Protestant, is nothing more than the full fulfillment of Jesus practicing Passover with his disciples. Look what Jesus did that night. Then came the day of unleavened bread. Oh, one of the feasts. And when Passover occurred, the Passover was going to be killed, he sent Peter and John saying, go prepare a Passover for us. So we may eat. So they said to him, where where, where should we prepare it? He said, well, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house he enters. 
Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room that I can eat Passover? There it is again with my disciples. Then he will show you a large furnished upper room and there make it ready. So they went in, they found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he sat down, the 12 apostles with him, and he said to them with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you. Because this Passover is what all other Passovers have pointed to. And I was so excited to eat this one with you. Now, if you knew you were going to die that night through crucifixion, would you be excited about eating that Passover? I'd be like, it's finally here. Jesus says, man, my whole life has been about this. I have so longed to dine with you and to tell you that everything about forgiveness is going to be fulfilled and I'm going to die on your behalf. And I couldn't wait to have this meal with you. Because there were three of us. The three and one in the Trinity. And one of us was removed from the Trinity to come to earth. And that one was broken. His body will be hidden for a time. And just as the Passover meal came, they went and found the one that was broken. It's called the Afikoman. They brought it back and he broke that piece of bread. And he said, this is my body. Broken for you. Take This is the symbol that I am the lamb whose body is broken for you. And the third cup, there's four cups in Passover. The third cup, the cup of redemption they've always known. He says, this now is the new covenant of my blood. For you will know ultimate Passover and ultimate forgiveness and ultimate freedom because what I have done for you. And that Passover meal, now the cup that he divided among them, became the meaning of what we know as true communion with God. This is my body, he said, of the Afikoman given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, the after supper cup is known as the cup of redemption, saying this cup will now be known as the new covenant in my blood and it's shed for you. And Jesus shows how even communion was a reminder what God's done in the past and it's a convocation of what he will do in the future. Passover was ultimately designed to be a time of storytelling. Now, there's a good case. I won't go into all the details because there's a lot of research you can do on this. There's a good case that Jesus did not die on Friday. He actually died on either Wednesday or Thursday. Because Jesus says that in order, he says, the sign to you will be the sign of Jonah, that I will be in the ground three days and three nights, just as Jonah was in the ground or in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. So depending on which particular year Jesus died, there's a pretty strong case that actually the Last Supper occurs here on Wednesday, that he's arrested here at the nighttime of Wednesday, and he's crucified on Passover, the day of Wednesday. Then you have three nights before you're going to head up to Sunday, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. But because of the Passover begins at 6 p.m., you get three nights in there in three days, which means during these three days and three nights, Jesus, during unleavened bread here, his body is in the ground for those three days, which then means that on Sunday, on first fruits, the week day after the Sabbath, after the Passover, that is the day in which Yeshua, or Jesus, rose from the grave. So I won't get into all the details, but... Because it depends on which year you put it on, whether it was Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. The real problem with Friday is you can sort of get three days in it based on the the Passover and the day starting at 6 p.m., but you can't get three nights out of it. So it's a really good case made for the particular year Jesus died, that he probably died on a Wednesday or Thursday, and then was raised, all, all the scenarios he's raised on a Sunday, fulfilling these feasts given so many years earlier. 
But the reason they would tell these stories, the reason they would react these stories, is because it was a storytelling reminder of how God worked in our past, that we could remember his work so we could trust him for the future. I am always amazed at my short-term memory when it comes to God. I say I'm free from something, but I don't act like I'm free. I say God is faithful, I don't act like he's faithful. I say that he's going to provide, I don't live like he provides. I say he's in control, I live like a worrier, not like somebody who has a God who's in control. Or have you ever had a conversation with your spouse where you go, I will never forget the time, and they don't even remember it occurring? Man, I do that all the time. My wife remembers something, most meaningful moment in our life and marriage, and I'm like, I don't even remember, or, or vice versa. And this is why we need habits or disciplines or rhythms in our life for remembering because we forget important stuff. Quinn just turned eight and he just continues. If you ever see my YouTube videos on, uh, on Facebook, he's just this incredible source of joy. And eight years ago, before we knew he had autism, we, uh, we knew he was blind and we were still wrestling with the, the implications of what that meant for us for him to be blind. So right before we moved in this facility, we took one month and we went down to, to Florida for a month and the first time uh, I've ever done it. And during that month, I prepped for our, our Revelation series we were going to do, which led into this building. We're prepping for the, the, the two-year curriculum we're putting together as we got into the church building for our equipping and our exploring service. And we're just recovering, my wife and I, from the news and the shock of, of a new child, an adopted new child, a new child with, with blindness. And so as we were coping with all that, we were down in Florida. I was saying we were at Calvary Chapel Church we were attending at the time. At the end of one of those ceremonies, or services rather, the pastor, Danny was his name, said, if anyone wants prayer, you can come forward. I said, honey, let's go forward. So my wife and I went forward with my son. I said, listen, there's no expectation here. You know, there's, there's no like you have to do a miracle here. But listen, I'll take whatever we can get. If you could pray for my son's eyes. We just got diagnosed that he was blind. And I love supernatural healing, uh, but I'll take strength too. But pray for anything you got. And so the elders came around, they laid hands on us, and they prayed for us. And by the way, if you ever want prayer being laid hands, we offer that in the hearth room. We always have elders in there, we, we anoint you with oil, and we'll pray anytime that you want that. That's always available. So they prayed over us, and it was just such a significant moment. And I can tell you, fast forward eight years, and if you took, even today... A crumb, so small that you and I could barely see it. I could probably even cut that in half. And if I drop that on the floor, Quinn today could reach over and pick that thing up. And during his early years, he had to look out of the corner of his eye crooked. It's called his null point. Now you wouldn't even see it. The only way you'd know that he has a blindness issue is because he holds my hand when we're in spots that he doesn't recognize because he hasn't memorized the, the layout. And I was telling my wife that, I said, you remember how we had people pray for us and how powerful that was? She goes, no, I don't. <laughs> Which I don't blame her because I said the same thing. I thought, well, look how easy it is for us to forget something. I'd forgotten it for years, actually, until uh, I had actually saw Danny in my news feed. I went, oh, my goodness. That was such a significant moment. That's a life-changing, miraculous moment. How could I have forgotten that? I just wish I knew... He had autism back then. I would have had him pray for that too. <laughs> we need disciplines in our life to remember what God has done because we forget. 
I went and saw the movie Dunkirk. And if, if you don't know the story, it's a powerful story of the English army is backed up onto Dunkirk in France. And the Germans have surrounded them. They're about to destroy them. England is so terrified that they're coming there next. They pulled back all their ships to protect the island, all their planes to protect the island. And now 400 soldiers, English soldiers, are trapped in Dunkirk, about to be killed, because there's no escape, because England has basically trying to protect the island for the next wave. But they send out a call to private fishermen, private yacht owners, to go and take their own personal votes to go into the war zone to rescue their soldiers. One of the most powerful scenes in the movie is a battleship going this direction back toward England and a fishing boat private yacht going this direction, one-tenth the size, into the smoke of battle. Who does that? And that day, 300,000 of the 400,000 men were rescued because private individuals took their private ships in the most dire of circumstances and brought about salvation to a group of people who didn't see any way out. And the retelling of that story is a lot like Passover. It's a reminder that when we were caught at the Red Sea, when we were in bondage to the most powerful empire in the world, Egypt, God made a way of salvation. And if he did that in the past, he can do it in the future. But the piece that's left out of the movie is my favorite part of the story. I've been telling the story for 20 years. That while they're there at Dunkirk, they get a chance to send, I think it's with a telegraph, uh, but it's a short message back to the, the mother, the motherland. And they're going to send one quick little note back to England. And here's the message that they send. But if not. End message. And the people in London went, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But if not. That those who had no hope of salvation, who were fighting the evil of Nazi Germany, they said, what's on our mind right now is, but if not. A quote from the book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar heats the furnace seven times hotter and says, you will bow down to me. And they say, no, our God is able to deliver us from this fire, but if not, we still will not bow down to you. Those in Dunkirk said, we know God could deliver us from this, but doesn't look like he's going to. All the ships are leaving. But if not, we're still going to stand in the gap against the evils to protect our families back at home. A reminder of what God did in Daniel, a reminder of what God did in Passover. We need disciplines, we need stories, we need reminders to put into our life. And I think that's why the main application here comes out of that short little verse. Proclaim pointed times. Call yourself out to appointed times. You and I need in our schedule appointed times, daily appointed times to rejuvenate, weekly rhythms in our life to recharge and to rest, monthly and yearly times to replenish ourselves, to refocus on God, to reorganize our schedule, to work on it instead of always working in it. So how's your schedule these days? If you look at your rhythms daily, weekly, monthly, annually, Have you created rhythms in your life that are sustainable? Are you partying enough? Are you feasting enough? Are you building community enough? Are you spending time remembering what God has done enough? Because if you don't, you'll end up 
living like a slave to something instead of living in the joy and the freedom he provided for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of your great work in this fantastic feast of Passover and unleavened bread. God, teach us about yourself, teach us about the rhythms you want in our life, and teach us how to have habits of joy and rest that replenish us and replenish those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here today.